3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everybody. You're listening to 3CR. This is Thursday Breakfast and we're in the studio. It's just Leela and Spike this week. Good morning, Spike. How are you going? How are you going? Good morning, guys. <laughs> Good morning. Yeah, well, it's been a tough week, I think, globally. Mm. Um, but in my opinion, that is the only reasonable response to what's happening right now. And I guess we can just all try our best to care for ourselves, um, scream and yell yeah. about the injustices and, yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, and yeah, take care of each other and, yeah, try and look after ourselves in tough times. And yeah, I was really proud of, um, I saw the, the protest on Tuesday and I thought, you know, that's really, you know, bring, raising awareness of the Gaza issue and what's happening to, um, yeah, um, the horses and the whole cup thing, the whole circus is, yeah, is a bit, is a, it's one of those things that I wish, yeah, we didn't have to sort of tolerate actually. Yeah. Well, um, as we were talking about before, we're going to touch on the link between colonialism and speciesism in a replay. And speaking of which, shall we go through what we've got in store for everyone this morning? Yeah. So last week, uh, we spoke to former threatened species commissioner, adjunct associate professor, with the University of Canberra's Institute of Applied Ecology and Darwell man Gregory Andrews, who joined Earth Matters Beck, Beck Horridge to speak about the hunger strike for climate that he began outside Parliament House on the 2nd of November. Gregory decided to strike, yeah, to strike to protest the inaction of the Albanese government on the climate crisis. You can sign uh, Gregory's climate petition. Oh, so we'll give you, we'll, we'll share the link later. Yeah, thank you. No worries. And then after that, we're going to hear a pre-record, uh, pre-recorded chat between myself and my friend, my dear friend, Polly Pearl Green. Polly Pearl's mob is linked to the Baroness, uh, Baroness Isaac's mob from Noongar Budja, Wajak Wadandi. They are a jazz musician and a beatmaker DJ who is passionate about care for land, First Nations justice and their furry life companion, Yusuf Katmal. Polly collaborates with Naomi Robinson under the name Special Feelings to create dreamy experimental jazz fusion sounds and you're going to hear one of the songs from their new album today. Awesome. Um, and also we'll hear an excerpt from Freedom of Speci Species, I'll spit that out, host <laughs> Caroline and Trevor who spoke about total liberation and why it's very important to stand against colonialism and genocide whenever and wherever it appears. They discuss the connections between forms of, of, oppression, of oppression such as racism and speciesism. And this is, and we'll hear an excerpt from a longer discussion. Listen, and we'll also share the link to that later. Yeah, thank you. And then 
lastly today, we're going to be speaking to Rakaya, an organizer of the project Harakat. Harakat, founded by friends Rakaya and Zainab, hosts free monthly screenings of Arabic language cinema on Bunurong and Wurundjeri country. This initiative, created by and for the community, showcases Arabic language storytelling through film with a desire to include other languages from Swana region. Harakat responds to the lack of nuanced perspectives from Swana communities in the Australian media and arts landscape and offers essential representations of Arabic-speaking cultures while challenging common assumptions about our cultures. Recently, in response to the ongoing genocide in Gaza, the silence of many and the silence of many artistic and cultural institutions in the country, Harakat is dedicating its programming solely to Palestinian stories and resistance, amplifying Palestinian voices and narratives. And now we're going to jump to a quick community service announcement before we get into our news headlines. You're listening to 3CR. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 9th of November. On Tuesday in Gaza, a convoy of five trucks and two vehicles carrying life-saving medical aid was allegedly targeted by Israeli settler forces. According to ICRC, the convoy was transporting supplies to health facilities, including Al-Qud's hospital, when it was hit by fire, damaging two trucks and injuring one driver. More than 1.5 million people in Gaza have been forced from their homes in search of safety. The World Health Organization estimates that an average of 160 children are currently being killed on a daily basis with Hamas's media office stating via Telegram that several cemeteries in Gaza have, quote, no more space for burials. Meanwhile, global outcry at the occupation of Palestine by Israeli settlers continues. On Tuesday in Nam, Melbourne, pro-Palestine activists demanding a ceasefire blockaded an intersection outside Flemington Racecourse hours ahead of the annual Melbourne Cup. Videos circulating on social media show police, police officers dragging protesters across bitumen in desperate attempts to clear the road. Yesterday afternoon at Port Melbourne, a second blockade was staged, yeah. was staged obstructing a Zim shipping services truck allegedly carrying weapons bound for the Israel colony. 
Protesters persisted with the blockade through the night into the early hours of this morning, forcing at least one Zim truck to turn around. Also also in headlines, with the warning, this headline contains details that may cause distress, especially for First Nations listeners. Monday the 6th of November marked the death of a 41-year-old First Nations man remanded in custody at Hakia Prison in WA. Despite recommendations from the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, sorry, yeah, sorry, Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody for independent investigations to ascertain the circumstances of deaths in custody, uh, WA police state that they will be conducting the investigation and preparing the report for the coroner. The 41-year-old was discovered unresponsive in his cell mid-morning. Attempts by prison officers and medical staff failed to revive him and he was declared deceased at the site. Amnesty's International's uh, Australia's Indigenous Rights Advisor, Palawa Elder, Uncle Rodney Dillon, calls for each, each case to be, quote, investigated in independently by a criminal investigator and not rely on government coroner. No one has been found responsible and there are no recommendations coming from the coroner that are stopping deaths in custody, end quote. This comes just weeks after the suicide death of 16-year-old Cleveland Dodd at, at Cassiorina Adults Prison on October 12, 2023. Cleveland Dodd was being held in the widely criticised Unit 18, a repurposed facility of Perth's maximum security prison intended as a short-term solution to unlivable conditions at Banksia Hill Youth Detention Centre. A statement released by Cleveland Dodd's family reads, quote, Our family is overwhelmed with grief as we come to terms with the unthinkable, the loss of our most beloved boy, who did not belong in a horrible place known as Unit 18. Our boy should have been at home with his family who loved, who he loved and who loved him dearly. Our boy deserved the future, end quote. And finally, in news headlines. As of Tuesday this week, public drunkenness is no longer a criminal offence in Victoria. This decriminalisation comes after years of campaigning from First Nations advocates, along with recommendations from several coronial inquests. It has been understood that the law disproportionately affects First Nations people, its enforcement resulting in multiple preventable deaths in custody. Since the 2017 death in custody of First Nations woman Tanya Day, her family have tirelessly advocated to abolish the discriminatory law. The Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service says the reform is a critical step in ending the racist policing of First Nations people. Victoria is set to take a health-based response through implementation of outreach services to support intoxicated people, such as assistance contacting family members, organising transport home and dedicated sobering up facilities. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 9th of November. You're listening to 3CR. This is a uh, logging operation. Any person found within this coop is offending. Can they please leave? You're allowed no closer than the bridge down the track there. Any person that's found in the coop will be arrested and charged. I direct that you all leave now. 
gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? From December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to gecko.org.au. Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter. Last week, former Threatened Species Commissioner, Adjunct Associate Professor with the University of Canberra's Institute of Applied Ecology and Darwell Man, Gregory... Gregory Andrews joined Earth Matters' Beck Horridge to speak about the hunger strike for climate that he began outside Parliament House on the second on the second of November. Gregory decided to strike to, decided to strike to protest the inaction of the Albanese government on the climate crisis. Well, I'm here again outside Parliament House, Canberra, on the protest lawns in a spot where so much has happened, and here I am today with Gregory Andrews. Gregory. You were on Earth Matters just recently talking about offshore wind. And there I was promoting your show and I suddenly saw that just down the road you are on day one of a hunger strike for climate. Well, I'm blown away and I came straight down to see you with a sombrolly for you. Hi. Hey, Beck, and thank you so much for the umbrella. Believe it or not, it's quite hot sitting in the sun in that protest area. Yeah, today is day one for me of a hunger strike that I imagine will probably go on for quite a while. I'm, I'm prepared mentally and physically for this to be something that's prolonged. I'm pretty much just fed up with the lack of inaction by our government, uh, all governments, uh, and I'm deeply concerned about the future for my kids, but also my country. This year I've been feeling a lot of ecological grief um, as a, an Australian of shared Aboriginal and European descent. Uh, I feel really upset and really torn by the impacts of climate change on country. But also this year particularly, we're really starting to see the emergence of climate collapse. And your listeners all know that. This year's summer in Europe has been horrific. Thousands of people have died from flooding and from fires and heat waves. And um, our government here in Australia just keeps approving more coal mines and chopping down trees. Well, Gregory, I want to stop new coal mines and I want to stop native forest logging, but it never crossed my mind to fast here in front of Parliament House in order to achieve this. Some people would say that this is an extreme thing to even start doing. Why did you choose this tactic? Yeah, so actually I should say that yesterday I did have a bit of an anxiety attack when I thought, what am I doing? Because I'd already pre-briefed the Canberra Times uh, and I thought I've passed the point of no return. But the reason I'm doing this is that I worked in the government for 31 years and I met lots of nice, committed people. And I was lucky enough to work under Julia Gillard and Greg Combe on climate change, and I really respected them. But I think that was when climate change was still perceived as a, 
a future emergency. But climate change isn't happening now. The Secretary-General is talking about climate collapse, but also he has access to the best and biggest suite of climate scientists in the world through the IPCC report, which clearly shows that the world is about to hit an irreversible tipping point. So I'd tried working in the government. I'd tried Extinction Rebellion rallies. Uh, I'd tried writing letters to politicians and tweeting things, but none of that worked. Emissions are still going up and the um, federal government keeps approving more coal mines. The four coal mines that Tanya Plibersek has approved since she was elected have cumulative emissions of 147 million tonnes, which is just like a sort of um, incomprehensible volume of emissions. So. I think that's why I'm on it. I thought about the power of hunger strikes with people like Gandhi. I started just thinking, well, what can we do? Because no one seems to be listening. The world's got cognitive dissonance. And, you know, with the greatest respect to my sister, who cares about climate change, she was going on cruises. And then I learnt that, like, one cruise to Antarctica can have the same per capita emissions as one European family for a whole year in Europe. And so we've got to change the way we live life and we've got to practice sufficiency as well as efficiency. But in addition to that, we really need governments to be accountable. And the current government's not accountable, it's greenwashing. And, and I've been in the government, I've written all those talking points. And it, it seriously... There was a pivot moment recently where I ran into a minister and I told that minister that I was concerned about climate change and then he started rattling off all these talking points and then I just said to him, look, I'm sorry, but I used to write all those talking points. I worked in the Department of Climate Change. They're all just whole of government cleared language. They don't mean anything, but they're just excuses and it's, the time is over for excuses. So, yeah, a long answer, but I think I thought about Gandhi and people like that who have hunger-striked and had an impact. And so, yeah, the idea came to me and I tested it with a few close friends, including my mum, who immediately said she would support me, and a good friend of mine who's like a brother who's a Tibetan monk, and he said that would be a really powerful statement. So here I am today. I, I was um, quite nervous yesterday and I did enjoy fattening myself up for a few weeks because I'm normally a healthy eater and I do have like a heart condition and my cholesterol and my blood pressure can get up a bit high. So I'm normally, I don't drink, I don't smoke, but I normally try to eat lots of healthy vegetables. And But anyway, for the last few weeks, I've been fattening myself up. So yesterday I had an almond croissant for breakfast and a pizza for lunch and gulab jamun for dessert last night. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm here and... Um, Are you hungry yet? Not really. I'm a bit lightheaded, uh, but I'm not hungry yet. But I was looking at all the rabbits. There's a lot of feral rabbits on the grasses here. And this morning, and I was imagining that maybe in two weeks, I'll start looking at them a little bit differently and see them as a source of food. <laughs> Watch out, rabbits yeah. at Parliament House. Yeah, I don't want to sound like a meanie, but rabbits, 
and I think all animals deserve to be treated humanely and ethically, but rabbits put extinction pressure on 300 native animals and plants that are on our threatened species list, and so they don't belong here. I'd, I'd rather see bilbies. Are you a threatened species commissioner? That's right. I was Australia's first commissioner for threatened species, which was probably the best job I ever had in my career. What is that? Basically, that job uh, was a great job. I got to mobilise resources and find money in government and also with community and private sector to support projects that would save species like numbats, bilbies, Norfolk Island green parrots, betongs. Uh, But also I learned a lot about communication because I realised that And I think this is relevant to climate change. I realised that actually, although like the science says that for our mammals, for example, feral cats, foxes, bushfires, climate change and habitat are the key threats, actually Kim Kardashian is one of the biggest threats. And you'd think, why is that? But it's because everybody in Australia recognises who Kim Kardashian is, even people who don't want to know who she is. But no one knows about let alone can recognise or name the 12 mammals we have in Australia that are rarer than China's giant panda. But, but I, I think basically communication's really important and I thought, well, maybe I can make a statement and maybe people complain about Extinction Rebellion. Well, I support Extinction Rebellion and, and I, I did think about gluing or locking myself to ministers' doors or officers, and I wouldn't rule that out, to be frank with you, in the future. But I thought that's already being tried and governments are responding by having draconian laws to penalise protesters. Uh, So what else can I do? And somewhere along that journey, I came up with the idea of a hunger strike. And here I am today, feeling quite determined and very empowered. Mate, you could make yourself ill by doing this. I, I could. I, I, I went and saw my doctor and um, I told her I wanted her to tell me that it was okay and that she would support me, but she wouldn't. Uh, but actually her response also annoyed me because she said, why don't you do other things like writing letters? <laughs> and I said, I've done all that. That's not working. So I think that, of course, there's a risk to me but I'm one person, but um, the science shows that between three and six billion people uh, will will be at risk of death because the the places they live are uninhabitable by the end of this century. And my kids are going to be alive then. You know, they'll be old, but they'll be alive at the end of this century. I don't want to leave my children a planet where half of the planet is no longer safe for, for people. Hi, are you looking for the hunger striker? No. No, oh, that's all right. One of the things that really annoys me and one of my demands for ending this hunger strike is the government needs to release the national security risk assessment for climate change. So they commissioned the Office of National Intelligence, which is kind of like this secret organisation that collects all the intelligence from the spying organisations, but also what they call open source, which is like, non-classified and they made them and very uh, for very good reasons they commissioned them to write a report on what are the national security implications for Australia of climate change 
And Anthony Albanese has been sitting on that report since the beginning of the year and refuses to release it. And because that report is going to say that climate change is a much bigger risk to Australia's national security than China, and the government's spending over $300 billion on submarines, but they're not doing enough on climate change, which is a bigger risk. So I'm pretty sure that's why he's sitting on it, but he should release that report because we need to know what the implications are. So, yeah, we need to know so that young people can actually prepare and work out what we need to do to adapt to these crises. So I've got five demands. My, my five demands to end this hunger strike are for the government to end the obscene fossil fuel subsidies, 11 to $12 billion a year of fossil fuel subsidies, which could actually fund 140,000 teacher or nurse positions or build 22 world-class hospitals in Australia. So that's number one. My number two demand is for the government to end coal and gas exports. Australia is the third largest exporter of fossil fuels in the world and our fossil fuel exports are two and a half times the size of our domestic emissions. So we can't kid ourselves that we can have a renewable economy in Australia but peddle toxic fossil fuels to the world. And then number three is to end native forest logging which is just destroying the last remnants of our beautiful biodiversity but also destroying and releasing carbon into the atmosphere. And then the, the last one is for the government to include climate change in our key environment protection law, the EPBC Act. So that law is, if anyone wants to do anything in Australia that might harm the environment, that law is the assessment process. And it says that you have to avoid, reduce and offset negative impacts on bilbies or bandicoots or grasslands, but it says nothing about climate change. So Minister Plibersex approved four coal mines with 147,000 tonnes of emissions in the last year. And when she is asked, well, why did you do that? She says, well, I wasn't required to consider the environment impacts of climate change because the law doesn't require it. But she's the minister, she's in government, and she could team up with the Greens and with the independents and change the law. And we could have a climate trigger in our environment law, which of course we need, because it's the biggest environmental issue as well as national security and prosperity issue for Australia. We've been over a few things now about who you are and how you, why you chose to do this and your five points of, was it five? Mm. Five points of why you need this change now. I'm going to come back, Gregory Andrews, in a day or two, and let's talk again, please. I think that's a good idea. Come back in a day or two, but also, if you want, come back in about 20 days because I don't think the government's going to be really acting that fast. Um, well, one thing I would say is and I would like to be your friend during this. Oh, thank you, Beck. And, and actually, anybody who knows me knows that I'm stubborn, so I won't give up until the Albanese government take meaningful action on climate change. And that was a conversation with former Threatened Species Commissioner Adjunct Associate Professor from the University of Canberra's Institute for Applied Ecology and Darwell man Gregory Andrews, who joined Earth Matters Beck Horridge to speak about the hunger strike for climate that he began outside Parliament House on the 2nd of November. 
Yeah. So next up, you're going to be hearing a chat between myself and Polly Pearl Green. Polly Pearl's mob is linked to the Baroness Isaac's mob from Noongar Budja, Wajak Wadandi. They are a jazz musician and beatmaker DJ who is passionate about care for land, First Nations justice and their furry life companion, Yusuf Katmal. Polly collaborates with Naomi Robinson under the name Special Feelings to create dreamy, experimental jazz fusion sounds. And in the next um, recording, you might hear a few interludes played live by Polly in the studio um, that we experimented with a bit. We thought it fit the conversation. So enjoy, everyone. Welcome, everybody. We're coming to you from Polly's studio in Preston and you're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855am. So I feel so privileged to be joining you here today. I'm going to have to try again because I've moved my chair. Sorry. I'm excited to do something a little bit different. I thought it would be a really nice break considering all that's been happening in the world, in so-called Australia, all the trauma that we've been experiencing online, vicariously. Yeah, today you and me, Polly and Leela, we're just going to have a little yarn, talk about some stuff that's important to us and yeah, just really nurture the space so we can kind of access some care and give some stuff back to ourselves for a change. Welcome. Hey, <laughs> what up? I'm Polly Pearl and we are broadcasting on the la- from the lands of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang people on the Kulin Nation. Um, yeah, we're going to yarn up. Yeah, so the way this came about was through friendship. Um, Polly and I have known each other for a long time and now we found each other on Wurundjeri land, I guess. And um, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) we've been nurturing the connection that we have and it's been really beautiful. So Mm -hmm. we're just gonna... um... (laughs) Yeah, Leela's always been super easy to yarn with, always super approachable and like one of the most accepting humans ever. Like whatever I say, there's never any judgment and you know... um, we relate in a lot of different ways, you know, from different lands, but, you know, there's parallels, so. Yeah, uh, I think something that I was really excited to explore today, rather than doing um, my, like, traditional informational kind of interview, was coming to this with the awareness that mobs knowledge has been extracted as a result of colonisation, so... Yeah, what we're doing today is we're both subjects in this conversation and we're just going to be chatting and yarning. Leela and Polly, yarning and through Okay, so Polly Pearl, I'm already lucky enough to know you. 
But for our listeners out there, I thought you could give us a bit of background uh, on what you do. I noticed recently, I never paid much attention, but your Insta bio <laughs> describes, you, <laughs> describes you as composer, DJ, that dare. Do you want to expand a bit on that? No. <laughs> no, I'm joking, I'm joking. Yeah, I'm a composer. A lot of my healing comes from, you know, my music and just playing that. Um, and also I get a lot of inspiration, you know, like curating playlists and then listening to it at my DJ gigs, like get inspiration for writing from that. Yeah. So just like I realised there are actually things that I actually haven't asked you that I'm kind of curious about now. So were you formally trained, I guess, in a Western sense as like a composer or was that something that you, a practice that you built just from mm. your own explorations independently? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I'd say it was mostly from my own explorations, but I did come into studying both sound production and composition at WAPA. Um, but yeah, I'd still give myself the full credit. Like, I don't think it added much to what I already had. And it was just a bit colonial, like the institution and that. So um, I did it, like, I think I went halfway through the course and then decided I wanted to spread my wings and focus on gigs and writing and stuff like that. So I was like, nah, not this. And then, um, yeah, so most of the music I play is intuitive, mostly from just listening to a lot of music and really having it as my safe space. Yeah, so I like to play with it. Yeah, I really relate to what you're saying about like, um, I think it always feels like such a rip off to give any institution credit for creative work, like especially as a person of colour. For me, in my experience, it feels like despite of having to train or having mm. to go through the trauma of the institution education, yeah. you're still creative. Yeah. It's, they're not to thank for it. No, it's they're just despite, trying to take the credit. Despite. <laughs> trying to take the credit, which <laughs> yeah. is fine. You know, it's whatever, but it's also expensive. And I'm glad I dropped out because I felt a lot more powerful once I was out of the course. Um, sound engineering, that was fun. That was at SCE, so it was a bit different. Very, like, sausage fest nerdy vibes. But, like, it was... I did, like, half that as well. So basically self-taught, but... Yeah, just from playing a lot by myself in my room and, um, yeah. Yeah. Got given a drum kit when I was 12 by my granddad, who's a jazz drummer. And ever since then, I've been trying to get a band together and finally did it, like, when I was, like, 20 or something like that. Yeah, amazing. Thank yeah. you for sharing that background. I actually didn't know some of the details, so I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. I guess... Segwaying into the next question, um, we were trying to find like a lens that encompasses all these different things that we wanted to talk about, which is really hard because I think the way a lot of us practice is not through categories and it's like about the way we live our lives, I guess. And so my next question to you really is like, what do you care about? What's important to you? And how do those things kind of feed into your creative practice or 
exist in like the ecosystem of your creative practice, your mm. healing, your interests? Yeah, so um, music is the medicine because, um, you know, when country is sick, like, you know, a lot of the community, Blackfella community struggles because country is like a tool of healing and, um, you know, a lot of the land has been cleared. Um, it was given to, like, the settlers to clear. Um, yeah, so that in itself is very traumatic and, you know, how are we supposed to heal when the country's all messed up and, like, overdeveloped near the waters, taken too many deep-rooted trees away and planted, like, all these colonial plants that don't belong here and mess up both the ecosystem and our lungs. Um, and, like, a lot of it you can't even burn or eat it. It's just not meant to be here. Um, one of the things that I would like to see changed is um, using native plants in urban areas instead of plants with harmful pollens or, you know, invasive species and that. Um, mm. Yeah, uh, subtle shout out to plane trees. We're talking about you. Yeah, plane trees. <laughs> we do not like you. <laughs> I like to call them colonizer trees because they planted them all over the city like in Nam and Bulu, I've seen it. I don't know about the other cities, but the plane trees and they really affect asthmatic people, um, making it hard to breathe for everyone, but especially asthmatic people. So in spring, it's quite scary. Um, the pollen can really cause like quite serious um, health risks or respiratory issues. And like you can't eat it, so yeah. <laughs> and it's not medicine, so we don't need it here. Um, yeah, I want native trees back there. So I think coming from like an Asian family, uh, we personally we had the mentality of if you can't eat it, why are you growing it? <laughs> <laughs> and it's still something that um, I find myself debating with people I share gardens with these days. Um, yeah. But I also recognise. You know, plants can nurture the land in other ways apart from providing mm. food. Um, yeah, but ecosystem roles, like for the animals and that. That's why if you have native plants, it's good for the native animals and then everything just flows a lot better. Um, and like, yeah, a lot of colonizers hide behind gardens because they're like, oh, look, I'm a good person. I do permaculture or whatever. But it's just another colonial, it's just another means of colonialism really through plants. And like taking plants away, putting different plants, that's like a real big problem. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like uh, everyone's feeling the effects of the plane tree pollen at the moment. And I mm. think it's a really good reminder of how the ongoing impacts of stolen land, they actually affect our bodies on a daily basis. And maybe if you come from a place where those trees are native to your land you can lose sight of the fact that they're not supposed to be here but the reality is that our environment is not built for those trees mm. and part of the pollen spread is because they're planted around concrete they're planted in cities 
the pollen isn't being caught by other plants and it causes real harm to our bodies on a daily basis. Oh. Uh, yeah, 70% of the tree population in inner city Melbourne is plane trees. Yeah, so and Collingwood, man, you can't even breathe in Collingwood. Well, like, obviously you can breathe, but it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really really quite toxic at the moment yes and so that's a thing and also all the parks like all the parks where they take um the deep-rooted trees away and they put grass which is not deep-rooted enough to hold the water table down it just basically messes up everything and then the grass seeds spread into the bush as well inhibit more deep roots and like once the water table evaporates it leaves salt in the soil so you can't grow anything and then, yeah, so there's just parks everywhere and they're all named after like, you know, mass murderers, like the royal family and that. And so it's just kind of like a bit triggering parks because, yeah, obviously there's been land clearing. And then also like for agriculture, when they take trees to grow food or plants um, for to feed animals, like livestock. Um, or like to ha have the livestock on, um, yeah, that affects affects the ecosystem. That really sucks. Shame. So it's really necessary to have ways to channel these feelings. And you were saying earlier today that music works for you like as part of this holistic practice of um, resistance and healing mm. and it's actually a way for you to express feelings about um, yeah care for land loss yeah yeah do you want to expand on that a bit I don't know if I'm yeah kind no. of translating that correctly that's, that's no that resonates a lot because you know a lot of um, to avoid disassociating and not being real with myself, I have to play music to regulate my emotions, my frustrations. Because I did study conservation as well, which is super whitewash and like some of the um, like the techniques that modern conservationists use, I don't really agree with like spreading poisons or trapping animals and taking samples and I think we just listen to you know traditional people, or um, you you observe instead of doing lethal methods, um, and no pesticides because what you put pesticide on the soil, then it goes into the plant, then you eat the plant, and then it's in your body, and it just cycles through and it goes into the water, and you know so. Yeah, that reminded me. I heard. Um so I'll put the details in the show notes, but I heard a really interesting presentation um, by an academic, First Nations academic, um, and a lot of it was centred around the idea of conservation and how conservation is a really inherently colonial idea and at its roots, when you unpack it, lies this question of what is being conserved like, are we conserving the colonial systems that we have in place, making them sustainable? So 
so colonization can continue like in this context is that what conservation means because it definitely doesn't mean land back yeah and i think um the concept of conservation has come too far from the reality of where we're at and a lot of time and effort and energy is being spent on calculating stuff but nothing is being implemented and then yeah and like the only reason why things are becoming endangered and stuff is because of colonial developments and ill-informed ways of um you know developing the land instead of working with nature it's kind of going against the grain and making the whole ecosystem and humans which is a part of that suffer as a result and yeah inhibiting healing you know um, yeah yeah I think it's really powerful that your music can provide you with some kind of emotional re regulation or space to like nurture yourself so you can thrive and resist yeah and I mean <laughs> I used to strive to thrive but now I'm just striving to be all right just yeah. be okay and that's enough for me you know if yeah. my head's above water so say if I get sooky about something or just a bit fed up with um you know the destruction of the land and and also the social issues that arise from colonization I'm just you know going into my own little safe space where I'm just making sounds with my fingers and trying to stay in a rhythm and feel happy and I feel like that is resistant in a way to wrap up our conversation today Polly would you like to share some of the things that keep you going, inspire you, and make you look towards the future? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of people to shout out, like significant community members, my family, elders, my mob, all that. But, um, you know, to tie in with this conversation, the people that inspire me are the people who are revegetating the wheat belt, number one because that's close to home and um, the canola fields um, yeah so revegetating that making the soil better um, yeah so that mob includes like the Maguire family Belladongas also auntie Vivian Hansen two is um, blackfellas in music such as uncle Archie Roast rest in peace um, and I was lucky enough to be a part of the Archie Roach Foundation and I got given some money to make music which is such a privilege and such an inspiration because you know a very authentic and inspiring man Archie Roach and even after that you know still inspiring youth you know um, and also want to shout out people like Baker Boy for, um, you know highlighting that music really is medicine and um, yeah just basically any black fella that's in music is very inspiring and also the people who are working for the land and speaking up like Jack Collard um, and you know auntie Vivian Hansen 
um, Len Collard, you know, people like that, Carla. Um, yeah, so thank you to everyone and, and thank you to Leela for having me on the show. Thank you for speaking with me. It has been such a pleasure and I'll see you next time. She knows. You just heard a chat between myself and Polly Pearl Green. Polly Pearl's mob is linked to the Baron Isaac's mob from Noongar Budja. They are a jazz musician and beatmaker DJ who is passionate about care for land, First Nations justice and their furry life companion, Yusuf Kutmal, who you might have heard at the very end there. So next up, we're actually going to a song from Polly Pearl's uh, project, Special Feelings. This is a song from their self-titled album, which is launching this Friday, the 10th of November. And you can pre-order their album or pick up a limited edition vinyl via their Bandcamp, which is wearetherhythmsection.bandcamp.com forward slash album forward slash special dash feelings. This is Animal Instinct by Special Feelings.
heard Animal Instinct by Special Feelings and their album is dropping tomorrow, the 10th of November. You can pre-order their album or pick up a limited edition vinyl by their Bandcamp and we will link all of those details uh, in our podcast page. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Earlier in news headlines, um, we heard about the protest that was held on Tuesday to raise awareness of the colonisation and the brutality that's happening in Gaza and also to draw attention to the way we treat um, animals, uh, the abuse of animals uh, you know, in circuses, zoos and at, at the Melbourne Cup. In the next excerpt from Freedom of Species, hosts Caroline and Trevor spoke spoke about total liberation and why it's very important to stand against colonialism and genocide whenever and wherever it appears. They discuss the connections between forms of oppression such as racism and speciesism. Speciesism? Uh, and here's an excerpt from a longer discussion. Listen, yeah, and you can listen. Oh, sorry. Yeah, have a listen. Palestine was invaded at the end of World War II against their will. Um, they... They have not given up sovereignty, very similar to what's happened in other colonial um, invasions across mm. the world, including this country we live in, Australia, including Aotearoa and New Zealand, many other places. It was an invasion against their will. They mm. have never stopped fighting to have their homeland. And they, it has been, I guess, rubber stamped by most of the Western Western countries and Western governments. Mm. Um, at the end of World War II, there was new borders drawn up without Palestine's consent and without most Arab countries' consent in yeah. the in the region. Yeah. And that's been that's the starting point is an yeah. invasion. So, um, if if people are having trouble thinking about that, we we really invite you to think about what's maybe closer to home and what's happening here in our country that we live in and 
we all pretty much agree that we're living on stolen land right now mm -hmm. and it's been going on for hundreds of years and mm -hmm. that sovereignty wasn't ceded and that the fight is ongoing and that it was a genocide. And I'm, I'm not trying to be an authority on the subject, but there are no. people can look up things like the Black Palestinian Solidarity um, events and conferences and look at First Nations um, activists from Australia who have been very vocal in their support of Palestine struggle because mm. they see the, the striking similarity in exactly what's happening of colonial invasion and genocide and a, a taking of land. Mm. So it's it's happened in many countries. Yeah, um, it's ongoing yeah. It's still ongoing. in many countries. That's and, the thing; it's ongoing, isn't it? Yeah. And Israel invading Palestine is just one more example of this colonial expansion that's ongoing, and that they're they're doing that through through genocide and through colonialism. Mm. Yeah. So people might be thinking, well, I understand all of that. But why is that relevant to freedom of species? And why mm. is an animal advocacy show talking about these issues? Yeah, well, for, for a few reasons. And, and I think that um, you articulated this really well, Trevor, when we were talking earlier, that um, people are not the only occupants of land. Exactly. So there are animals, many animals, many species of animals living on all of these occupied lands. Yes, and when they're um, facing, they're, I mean, they're facing their own annihilation. Yeah. And, you know, we can talk about um, settler colonialism here in so-called Australia. And as discussed, you know, tenets of that are genocide, um, mass clearing of land and yeah. habitat that disrupts, you know, native animals. Um, and animals being both the victims and also the tools used to further oppress and grab land. So hopefully people are aware that grazing and clearing of land is a tool of colonisation to keep control of large amounts of land. So there's the conversion of, you know, native woodland into pastures. And yeah. then there's the mass production of sheep or cows or other yeah. animals to keep that land in that new formation and it, it degrades the land it, it degrades the ecosystem it, it ruins the the balance of, of the ecosystem that's there but it also serves as a way to keep control of large amounts of land easier yeah. and it allows the ongoing expansion in a colonial way so Absolutely. we've seen animals being the victim often native animals mm. but then also introduced species being the tools of that oppression yeah and they're not just because they're the tools doesn't mean they're not also being used and abused. Oh, absolutely. So it's not that they've got it necessarily any better off than the victim animals or the native animals that are often being exterminated or, or, or wiped down in, in their population numbers. Absolutely. So we're not experts with what's on the, on the ground happening in Palestine. Uh, we're not claiming mm. to be, but we definitely see the parallels and we know that these issues are global issues. They affect everyone who's under a colonial um, invasion government and that's ongoing in many countries. Yeah. And um, we think it's important to, to see those similarities. And if, if you are uncertain about what you think about what's happening over there with Palestine is to start with what you know a bit more about in terms of our current 
colonial invasion of this country mm. and see what would be similar, what's going to be mirrored in other colonial invasions around the world and start there, start start from a, a place of solidarity thinking, well, yeah. this is what I know is happening in my backyard, so to speak. Let's look for what's similar that's happening overseas. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think we also want to state that, um, you know, the Freedom of Species team really um, believe in total liberation. That's yes. the lens through which we view where we want to head justice in, in, in the general. world and, yeah. where, and where we see justice. And so when we talk about total liberation, um, which is sometimes called total liberation ecology or veganicism, yeah. <laughs> we're really also talking about a political philosophy and movement that combines anarchism with a commitment to animal and earth liberation. Yes. So while we are opposing the state, right? Yep. We also want to, um, we also are really concerned with opposing additional forms of human oppression as well as the oppression of animals and ecosystems. So that kind of oppression can look like capitalism, patriarchy, racism, heterosexism, disabilism, ageism, speciesism. Colonialism. Absolutely. You probably said that one, but just (laughs) to reiterate. (laughs) So it's all connected. You know, no one is free if we're not all free. That's it. It's the the underpinning moral values that most people use to arrive at being vegan or being animal advocates and seeing the injustice that's happening. When you apply those same values to other groups of people who are also being othered and oppressed... It's only logical to be consistent in that, which is yeah. why another term is consistent anti-oppression, to be against oppression no matter who is suffering the oppression. Yeah, absolutely. Whether that's animals, humans, whether it's a mix, no matter who it is. And um, as you said that it affects multiple issues, one being racism, mm. we also wanted to point out that racism and speciesism have been very closely intertwined over hundreds and thousands of years, but still Mm. to this day. And there's many, many amazing black and people of colour activists who have spoken on this. I know Christopher Sebastian is one that comes to Mm. mind. Um, They they talk about how the same language is used to otherise people of a a race Mm -hmm. and the same language is used to then otherise animals. Yeah. And that it's often the exact same language or they will animalize people yeah. or they will, they will refer to animals as people of a, of a lower class in order to make people think it's okay to exterminate them. Like they'll call some people rats or, yeah. or vermin. Right. Um, you know, th- that sort of language is used. And I think you've even got to some... To uphold speciesism, right? Exactly. Racism and speciesism Correct. together. Correct. Yes. And, yeah, I do have some quite um, shocking comments that I really did want to share uh, that we don't see in the mainstream media. And that's the really important thing, I think, about 3CR, that we can bring, you know, some depth to to some of these discussions. This is a comment by um, the Defence Minister of Israel on October 9 in a televised address. There will be no electricity, no food, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting animal people and we are acting accordingly. Yeah. 
And that mindset shows a, an, a, a, a superiority above animals and then trying to reclassify some humans as animals. So it's, it's doing both. It's doing yeah. the racism and the speciesism of saying, I'm better than animals and I'm better than these humans of a different race because I see them the same as animals. Yeah. Another one that just um, really indicates the the targeting and the um, determination to annihilate. This is from the Major General of the Israeli Army, who said, again, on October 9, but in um, some social media, that animal humans will be treated accordingly. You wanted hell, and you'll get hell. Wow. Even the Prime Minister, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who's saying we will turn Gaza into an island of ruins. So that's really determined language mm. to continue with the absolute annihilation um, of Gaza. And that means everyone living there. Yeah. People and animals. And while there's been some really lovely stories of um, resistance and what people were doing on the ground. And there are some incredible um, animal um, advocacy rescues, etc. Yep. Palestinian Animal League, League and others, um, people finding their cats, you know. Yep. As it came to this weekend and what we saw is a complete blackout of electricity and of the internet. So mm. people are essentially in darkness. They're only in darkness, so no one can see yeah. what's actually happening That's on the ground. Sweep it under the rug. Yeah. 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 So I think we really invite listeners to try and see these links and to yeah. really be vocal about it and call it out. So, you know, when you see people or when you see phrases in the media that are speciesist and racist, see those links. Don't don't ignore it and, and really like stand up against both. We don't want you to, it's not about standing up just against one or the other, but hmm. what's right is right. And what's, what's wrong is wrong. And use that same moral value judgments that you're making and you're more comfortable with, with your other advocacy and try and incorporate more to that. And, hmm. you know, when you see these statements that are both racist and speciesist, mention both. Don't yeah. just mention one or the other. Yeah. Really try and get people thinking of seeing these links because if we're only trying to fight one front of oppression at a time, we're not going to get anywhere. We need to be putting pressure all the time, all fronts of oppression at the same time. Uh, and you just heard a fantastic conversation um, um, from the Freedom of Species hosts, Caroline and Trevor, who spoke to us about total liberation and why it's important to stand against racism, colonialism and genocide wherever it appears. Since 1954, Overland has been home to local and international literature, non-fiction and cutting-edge poetry. Overland Journal's subscriber drive is on now. Anyone who takes out an annual subscription between now and November the 10th will go on the draw to win heaps of prizes, receive four issues of Overland, and be supporting vital Australian literary culture. Overland Journal in print quarterly and online weekly. Head to overland.org.au to subscribe today. Overland Journal is a 3CR supporter.
Disabled people are worth every bloody penny. I'm okay with spending money on the supports that we need. There's more than 400,000 people who should be on the DSP, but are on JobSeeker instead. I've got a life to live. I've got commitment. Like everybody else in society. The only way to provide meaningful support is stronger grassroots movements. These institutions are never going to be our saviour. If everyone was the same, it would be a boring old world we live in. We need to do a lot of work in this country around shifting community attitudes towards people that don't fit the white, able, straight, cisgendered person. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. We're back on Thursday breakfast and next up I'm so excited to be introducing Rukaya, an organiser of the project Harakat. Harakat is founded by friends Rukaya and Zainab who, and hosts free monthly screenings of Arabic language cinema on Bunurong and Wurundjeri country. This new initiative, created by and for community, showcases Arabic language storytelling through film with a desire to include other languages from the Swana region. Harakat responds to the lack of nuanced perspectives from Swana communities in the Australian media and arts landscape and offers essential representations of Arabic-speaking cultures while challenging common assumptions about our cultures. Good morning, Rukaya. Welcome. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. So I thought, first of all, you could just start by introducing the project. How did this project, Harakat, come about? And was it collectively conceived or something on more of an individual level that then was adopted by community? Yeah, um, I actually really love telling the story. Um, I mean, I think most community actions are always just conceived by so many, but I think Harakat as a project came about. Um, it's something that I started with a very, very dear friend of mine, Zainab, um, and we both um, we both speak Arabic. We came we come from Arabic speaking households, and what brought us together was the fact that we both obviously spoke the language, but didn't really hear it much outside the family home. Mm. And this has been a common thread that I suppose runs through our relationship. It underpins our friendship, the work we do in creative and community spaces, and I think that is what encouraged us to start a project that not only platforms Arabic language film, but spaces that bring together people who are curious about the language, who speak it and want to hear more of it. Um, Obviously, it's completely community-run. We do it and and self-funded. We do it in our free time because we love film. We love where we come from and we love meeting other people who feel the same way. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that background. And I think the curiosity is real for a lot of community, especially mm. diaspora, that are a bit more cut off from that cultural history. Um, you know, my grandparents uh, assimilated out of necessity and we didn't get to mm. learn Arabic at home. Um, so on that note of language, can you speak to the meaning of the name Harakat and its significance in the context of this project? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, to us, 
Hadagat is what we do, right? So the word in Arabic directly translates to movement, but colloquially it describes something like mischief and getting together. Excuse me. Um, Hadagat is also, we feel, an invitation for our community to build on their own perspectives of identity and to also decolonise the cinema space. Um, Hadakad to us is a cheeky way of really calling people together to action. Um, also, through the course of this program that we've been running for the past year now, um, we've had a lot of people who speak other languages in the region, um, people who speak Turkish, people who speak Farsi, um, come to us and say, we, we know exactly what that word means. We use that word. It means exactly how you... Um, say it is. So it's really universal across the region and it sounds like exactly what it is. Um, so that's, that, that's why we thought we'd, um, we'd, we'd call our programs that. And yeah, also just generally, um, personally, one of our favourite words. <laughs> yeah, I can understand exactly why. Uh, I was lucky enough to first experience one of your events on Monday this week yeah. and I'm Curious to know more about your earlier programming after that. In the past, were your choices of film curated or were they selected in more of an organic way? Can you give us a little, yeah, I guess maybe a little bit of a rundown of your past programming for those who haven't been before? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's so crazy to ask when we meet people like you, Leila. It was so nice to meet you on Monday. Thanks for coming through who haven't heard of us or hadn't been to one of our events before because what characterises our community screenings is the fact that they're so busy and full of people and joy and they're loud and they're obnoxious. And when I say that, I mean we have put a lot of time and energy into creating spaces that run parallel to what we know cinema to be in this country. Um, Our screenings occur across like, like in the last um, year, they've just been popping up in different locations around the inner north. Um, so different bars, restaurants. Um, on Monday, we had our screening in the courtyard of our friend's bar, um, Capers. Shout out to Capers, who were incredible on Monday. Um, basically, they're really makeshift cinemas that we erect. And we approached them with a pretty deep, like a decolonial mindset to kind of make cinema feel less pretentious, more accessible um, to our community. Um, Our hope is that through our screenings, anyone really, especially someone from our part of the world, can look around and be comfortable to say, yeah, we're, we're many things and we're not just confined by the social conditions and assumptions that are associated with living in the diaspora, which is a big thing for us and comes up a lot in our screenings. Our screenings are also a meeting place. It's a soft landing for community to come together and meet each other. Um, Often we have people just showing up alone and feeling comfortable to keep doing that. And that's huge for us. Um, It's creating kind of an alternative space where people can... um, come together that isn't necessarily about going to a bar or a club or a cafe or about meeting someone directly. Um, And, yeah, I think we do that with our screenings. Um, 
we um, we get a lot of help from our friends and family as well. So it feels like a very loud, uh, you know, um, coming together, um, which is really, uh, you know, of, like common for us. Mm. Um, but yeah, our screenings are pretty chaotic. Uh, mm. We often have about 60 to 100 people come through. We try to fit as many people as possible. We manage to do it often um, to our surprise and everyone else's. <laughs> and, yeah, we're really excited to keep doing that for, yeah. as, long as, you know, for as long as people want us. <laughs> that was something I really enjoyed about the screening on Monday was the kind of casual chaos, which is what I'm used to, you know, in my Ooh. personal life, in my home, it feels safe. It feels, um, yeah, good. And we really need to foster spaces like that, I think. Um, so come as you are and leave your shoes at the door or not, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I felt really comfortable to come on my own, which I don't always to um, events. Um, so speaking of that Monday screening, that was the first in a series of your future programming dedicated to Palestinian solidarity. Can you take us through some of your plans for upcoming events and the thinking behind your Palestinian-only programming? Absolutely. Um, you asked earlier about our previous screenings and although we've shown films from... Lebanon and Tunis and Sudan and um, other places in the Swana region. We've also shown many Palestinian films, but already our program um, prioritises Palestinian voices and storytelling. However, in solidarity with the Palestinian struggle for justice and liberation, especially now um, with what we're seeing in Gaza, the genocide in Gaza, blockade, um, we feel that our programming, for as long as it needs to be, forever in fact, should really be dedicated to Palestinian stories and resistance. And we, we felt that the present silence of a lot of artistic and cultural institutions all around the world, but especially in this country, in the face of the ongoing um, you know, wholesale slaughter mm. of Gazans um, is disgusting. And we don't want to be complicit. We're not complicit. And we're going to do our best, all that it takes, to create soft spaces where our community and our allies can come together, a place where we can sustain each other as we protest, as we educate, and as we call uh, for an end to the siege on Gaza and the illegal occupation of Palestine. I'm not Palestinian myself. I'm Lebanese and Zainab is Iraqi. But, you know, from, we come from places in the world where we know very well how devastating it is to experience war and to be displaced by war and racism. And we don't stand for it. And we see this as a, a, a really important platform to um, elevate the important voices, especially right now. So um, we'll be having running out uh, monthly programming as usual, but every film that we screen will be um, a Palestinian film. Films that we've screened in the past have been, you know, films by Elias Suleiman. Um, and on Monday we screened a film by Edward Said, um, and we have 
planned to have our next screening on the 16th of December. Um, but we'll also continue to um, screen and share um, Palestinian cinema, which is incredible cinema, cinema that we want to share with as many people as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And you spoke a little bit about this um, this next question I have in your last answer, but I was wondering if you could speak a little more to the importance of carving out space for Palestinian community to come together, soft space to come together, and how adjacent community members like ourselves and allies can facilitate this, which sometimes means giving up space or leaving space. Oh, absolutely. I think um, I think that's a really good question, Layla. Thank you for asking it. And I think there, there are challenges to it, right? It can feel pretty daunting and overwhelming to think that you're bringing together sometimes strangers to with the purpose of, um, you know, a goal, and that can feel like a goal to rest and relax and and feel connected and close. Um, and unfortunately, in, in this country, there aren't many spaces for that, um, especially now more than ever, where we felt that liberal spaces that we thought were existed to make us feel safe don't really feel so safe anymore. Um, I think that, um, you know, it's important to, uh, in our messaging, to make it very clear that we are centering community and allies. We're very um, direct about the fact that our screenings are designed for people who come from Arabic language backgrounds who are looking for a place that probably doesn't exist anywhere else for them, especially here in Nam, mm. um, where we're based. Um, I think that was the second part to your question, but I, I, I've forgotten it. If you don't mind <laughs> oh, that's okay. It was also just, I guess, about the importance of leaving room for those who really need it. Um, as you mentioned, your screenings can be quite crowded and it's really important to maintain that sense of intimacy. So I guess you could describe for us a mentality that allies can lead with in order to make sure they're platforming, leaving space for those who need it. Absolutely. And I think we're pretty proactive. We've been pretty like proactive and staunch from the get-go. We demand that anyone who cares about us, wants to attend our screenings, really do the bare minimum to read the room. And what we mean by that is if you are wanting to attend our screenings, they're always busy. If you feel like this, it's effectively not for people who aren't people of colour. And if you're, we welcome everybody and our lives, but we also are really about the fact that we expect our allies to make room to centre themselves, um, show up and support, but maybe not even enter the cinema space if they can see that there's no room for them. Um, and we are really, really impressed with the fact that our community understands that. We've been able to foster a really beautiful um, community who follow us, come to our screening, show up every month and honestly just like are there to help and support 
even if it means they can't actually go in and watch the films themselves. And we're really touched by that. There's a big sense of community, solidarity and camaraderie that um, is really like um, comes together at our screenings. And I think a lot of us are really exhausted and a lot of us, us are really grieving and hurt and um, working very hard to make life feel really safe for ourselves and the people that we care about the most. So we, we, we love that we get to kind of land as we are in these messy, chaotic screenings just to kind of replenish us um, and to be reminded that, you know, we're soft as well and we, we, we do have the support of community, um, whether our direct community or just, you know, people who've heard about us who just are really keen to sort of uplift what we're trying to do. Um, yeah, hope that answers your question. Yeah, thank you. And I think it's a really beautiful culture that you're fostering at Harakat for allies to recognise um, their limitations and ways that they can productively support uh, mm-hmm. people of colour at this time. And now mm-hmm. we're running out of time. Mm-hmm. I could talk to you all morning, so thank you so much. But I understand that you have a statement from a Palestinian-led collective and we decided that would be a really lovely way to end our interview today did you want to share a little bit about where this statement comes from and then, yeah, share the mm. statement itself or the excerpt? Absolutely. Um, so I'll read an excerpt from A Call to Action that was put together by a NAM-based Palestinian collective. Um, and there's some starting points for getting active, especially right now um, with calling an end to the genocide occurring in Gaza Um, the illegal occupation in Palestine. So I'm going to read that now. Um, What is happening in your workplace? Has it been silent? If so, why? Has it sent communication about Israel's rights? If so, why? Ask these questions and demand better. The law will protect you. Any dismissal on the grounds of such questions falls under a violation of the Anti-Discrimination Act, but I hope it won't come to that. Are you associated with an organisation or workplace that has adopted the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism? Work to repeal it. It creates an unsafe environment not only for Palestinians, Arabs and Muslims, but also for Jewish friends and colleagues. What letters or petitions can you sign on to? Are you an artist or an academic? There have been letters circulating for both. If you see platforms publishing good content, write and thank them. I can tell you they are inundated with hate mail right now. Letters of support help them balance the scales and see what we appreciate. Sorry, uh, balance and see that I we think appreciate We are life. going to have to wrap it up. I'm so that's sorry cool. to interrupt. No, that's okay. We'll I'm... include the full statement, um, the full call to action on our website. And thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's really been a pleasure. Of course. Thanks for having me, Layla. I hope to see you at your next screening. Bye bye. Bye. You just heard. Rukaya, speaking as an organiser of the project Harakat. Harakat, founded by friends Rukaya and Zainab, 
hosts free monthly screenings of Arabic language cinema on Bunurong and Wurundjeri country. This initiative, created for and by the community, showcases Arabic language storytelling through film with a desire to include other languages from the Swana region. Harakat responds to the lack of nuanced perspectives from Swana communities in the Australian media and arts landscape and offers essential representations of Arabic-speaking cultures while challenging common assumptions about our cultures. Recently, in response to the ongoing genocide in Gaza and the silence of many artistic and cultural institutions in the country, Harakat is dedicating its programming solely to Palestinian stories and resistance amplifying Palestinian voices and narratives. Thank you everyone for joining us on Thursday Breakfast this morning. That's all we have time for today and we'll see you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.